I'm your host for the month, Patrick Fink, a fourth-year medical student at Oregon Health and Science University. This week, I'm talking with Dr. Patrick Okersey about emergency ultrasound as it's taught in residency, the seven scans that every emergency intern needs to know, how to integrate ultrasound with the physical exam, and we touch on the future of emergency ultrasound, including transesophageal echo during cardiac arrest. There are a lot of great resources and links in this month's show notes, so be sure to check those out as well. And before we get started this month, I'm happy to announce that we've completely rebuilt the emigcast.com website. It looks fantastic, and it's a great way to check out all of our past episodes and to subscribe to our future content. And now, without further ado, here's Dr. Oversee. Why don't you just quickly introduce yourself and talk a little bit about how you got started with ultrasound? All right, cool. So, um, my name is Patrick Okersey, and uh, I am the ultrasound fellowship director at the University of Utah for emergency medicine. And um, I was a resident uh, here at University of Utah. Did my fellowship here, and then stayed on as faculty. And I guess um, I got interested in in ultrasound during residency. I actually hadn't done any ultrasound in medical school at all. And um, just a couple kind of key cases that really hit home the value of, of learning this and uh, wanted to go into teaching and wanted to go into some academic roles and it just seemed to be a good fit. So it worked out really well. Do you remember any of those key cases? Yeah, I mean, I remember one that stands out very clearly and it's um, it was intern year uh, at kind of the community hospital and there was a... A little girl, uh, I want to say four years old or something like that, four or five years old, and she had been yanked by her dog who was on a leash, uh, who was, I guess, chasing a car or a squirrel or something, and kind of dragged across the sidewalk like, I don't know, five, six feet. So not a major mechanism of an injury, not like a trauma activation or anything like that. But she had some significant like road rash over her belly, and she wouldn't let anyone examine her. And I just remember thinking, you know, you don't want to CT this girl. You don't want to do labs on this girl, stick her with a needle, but there's some potential for serious injury here. And so we talked about doing serial abdominal exams and we said, well, we should just do serial ultrasounds. And as soon as we put the probe on, she had a a belly full of blood and a spleen lack. And uh, we ended up getting the CT and she got admitted to the PICU and she did fine. Um, But I mean, within two minutes of of seeing this girl and and not really being able to examine her because of the road rash and not being able to tell you know, really where her pain's coming from because she was just crying and screaming. We had a pretty good answer of what was going on pretty quickly, and I, I just I'll, I won't ever forget that case. So it was a good one. How have you seen ultrasound change since you first started using it? Certainly, more people are comfortable with it, uh, which is great. Uh, more people in emergency medicine, as I as I go to teach it. You know, more people raise their hands that they're using it in their everyday practice and care. I think people are getting a little more sophisticated with their 
techniques and stuff. I think at this point, most people can do, you know, what I think are the key things that you need to know as a graduating resident, which are like the critical um, components of fast exam and aorta scan, a basic echo. Um, and now you have you have definitely a small subset of people trying to push the boundaries and really um, take it to a different level with like resuscitation and TEE and um, people using it more for different procedures like nerve blocks, um, different than maybe how I initially learned to use it for like central lines and so forth. So I think people are just getting more creative with it and um, the barrier is decreasing, uh, the cost is decreasing and so people are getting their hands on it and they're just using it um, kind of integrated into their practice and that goes outside of emergency medicine as well. We're getting more people from clinics um, inpatient services uh, coming to us and asking for more ultrasound education as well, which is fantastic. So it seems like uh, ultrasound has been introduced into the curriculum of essentially every emergency medicine residency as part of the requirements. Is there still a pretty big spread in the depth of those programs between different residencies? Definitely. I think that's maybe it's difficult to standardize it. It's difficult because I think we're kind of in a, almost a renaissance of ultrasound where it's, it's now available almost everywhere, uh, at least in the emergency department, at least in training programs that is. And, uh, people are still at different levels of how they're integrating it into their care. I think there are barriers from like hospital level and then like fund of knowledge level, uh, where people are, not comfortable teaching certain procedures or, or um, modalities. And so I think that you're going to have a different experience kind of wherever you go. But I, I would, I would say that most people graduating, I think have a very adequate experience. And uh, to be honest, I'm not sure that you need to know some of those more advanced techniques like diastology and right heart strain and things like that to be, you know, a decent emergency physician. I think you can be better by knowing those things. Mm -hmm. But um, I mean, I can tell you that like my toxicology knowledge uh, could use some uh, buffing up there. And so I I think everybody kind of chooses a little niche and so forth. But we want to keep pushing the boundaries of ultrasound. And um, uh, I think here we get a pretty good experience. But um, yeah, it's definitely variable. So if all EM residents are being trained in ultrasound to some degree, what then is the role of an ultrasound fellowship and why would someone choose to pursue that? That's a great question. I, I always tell people who are interested in fellowships to kind of think about why they want to do it. I think there are a number of reasons that it's worth doing, um, but you really need to make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons. The other thing is that just like we talked about with residencies having different uh, I guess, experiences with ultrasound. Fellowships have very different experiences. It's certainly not a standard uh, like ACGME accredited fellowship where there's a curriculum across the country and, and so forth and a test. And, and um, we may be heading in that direction, but for now it's not like that. And so I think you need to choose a program that also matches with those interests of why you're doing it. So if you want to go out and be a community ultrasound director, um, you actually may already be qualified to do that. Um, just from graduating residency and training in kind of this era of ultrasound. But again, that depends on your experience during residency and it depends on the place where you're going to go practice and if they already have ultrasound. If they already have ultrasound and they're using it, probably a fellowship is worthwhile in in running a program and starting a program, learning how to manage the machines, do the QA, do the billing, all of the kind of nuts and bolts that go along with uh, practicing ultrasound in the department. I think that's one reason to do it. I think another reason is kind of what we talked about 
with pushing the limits of ultrasound and kind of resuscitation and figuring out how to better integrate it in, in our practice. And certainly if you want to go into academics and push those limits, then there's value in that as well. I also think that some people just want to have maybe a different component to their practice. Um, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot of burnout in emergency medicine. And so diversifying just a little bit to be able to, to take a chunk of time and teach or, you know, do administrative work with ultrasound or do something else um, has some significant value to it too. So I think people do it for that reason as well. But I, I think you really need to kind of think about what you want to get out of a program and then try to choose a program that matches up with, with those goals. Are they typical, typically one year? Yeah, most programs are one year. There are a handful that are two years, um, and usually those are combined with other uh, degrees, um, whether it's like um, health sciences uh, and research degree or, or public health degree or, or something like that. Okay. So for our, our listeners who are pretty naive with ultrasound, thinking about like maybe this is something they want to pursue as an interest in their practice, where do you think they should start and what are like where should they be investing their time to reap dividends down the road and what are the big mistakes that you can make early on that'll be really annoying later <laughs> um i guess the first thing is if you have access to machine get on the machine nothing substitutes for hands-on time um, and then just get curious, right? Scan yourself, scan your family, scan your friends, uh, scan your patients. Um, I mean, when I was learning, I used to like take my kids into the emergency department and, uh, you know, bribe them with like an iPad or a phone and just scan them when they were like two and three years old, uh, to look at stuff and measure stuff and kind of get creative with it. So that'll help with your, not just like education, um, with ultrasound, but also with your just education of anatomy and, and physical exam and so forth. Uh, so if you're really early on, try to get your hands on a probe and scan uh, anything you can. If you don't have access to a probe, that's actually okay because there are a lot of great online resources and the whole kind of foam community, the, uh, was it free online access, access to medical medicine, education? Yeah. yeah is, is really awesome. And ultrasound is, is a really great marriage for kind of that foam world on Twitter and, and podcasts and so forth. So get out there and check out some podcasts. Um, the ultrasound podcast is a great one. That's run by one of my colleagues, Mike Mallon and, and Matt Dawson, and Jacob Avila. Um, there are a bunch of great ones out there, a bunch of great blogs. So just find one that suits you and stick with that and look at a bunch of images and talk about it. As far as what, what are the big pitfalls and um, mistakes that people can make, I'd say probably being overly confident early on with the ultrasound is, is a, a challenge. Uh, certainly, it can make you confident by seeing stuff, but you really want to make sure you know what you're seeing, at least early on. Like I tell our fellows when they're training, there is no shame in doing an ultrasound and then getting a radiology-performed ultrasound to confirm it. Um, I don't think we should be billing for that if we're just going to repeat the exam. But if you're early on in your training, that's what's going to actually give you the confidence that you can trust your images. Um, so if you're too confident early on and you're not doing that, um, then you, you know, there's a lot of potential for missteps. 
Um, but you know, if you see a gallbladder and you say, I think I see a stone, I'm not hundred percent, you know, let's get the formal radiology study. Um, that's only going to help secure your, your ability to make that diagnosis early on. Another great example is like appendicitis. So appendicitis is something that, uh, in the pediatric world, they're pretty comfortable with ultrasound in the adult world. They're not. And, uh, a lot of patients, most patients probably get CT scans to diagnose their appendicitis, but it turns out we can definitely see the appendix. Um, I don't think we're good enough to rule out appendicitis, but if we can see it, we can avoid a CT scan and so forth. If you're overly confident and you're fighting with a surgeon over that, you could potentially do a lot of harm. So early on, do the appendicitis ultrasound, take a look at it and say, I think this is appendicitis, call the surgeon. If they want the CT, that's okay. That's only going to establish trust and kind of build your security and comfort with performing that exam and then build their comfort with you. That also just as a side note, brings me to an important thing I think that that's worth mentioning, and that's that ultrasound is not just for emergency medicine, it's for everybody. A great surgeon isn't going to trust a radiologist to read their CTs, they're going to look at their own CTs. So it's a little disingenuous for us to think that the surgeons are just going to trust our ultrasounds if they don't know how to do them. So if you're having trouble um, kind of having people you know, go on your read and, uh, and, and trust your opinion and so forth, you need to reach out to them and include them in that discussion and get their hands on the probe. So a lot of times I'll leave the ultrasound at the bedside if I'm calling a surgery consult and uh, when the resident comes down, I'll just put the probe on in front of them and say, look, there it is, there it is. And if they still want the CT or the formal ultrasound, that's fine. If it confirms what we saw at the bedside, then the second time around, they're going to think twice about that. And, uh, and then that's going to help their education and try to get their hands on the probe because a surgeon who knows how to do ultrasound is a really valuable asset to the hospital. So um, it's not just for emergency medicine. It's for our critical care colleagues, our internal medicine colleagues, even our clinical like outpatient colleagues. But don't think it's like just a slice of the pie that we have to keep to ourselves. I think it's something that we can share with everybody. Let's, let's pivot now and talk a little bit more about applications of ultrasound and not just... Uh, the logistics of learning ultrasound. Um, what do you think are like the indispensable applications of point of care ultrasound in the emergency department? Like if you had to pick, you know, at most five that ever, okay, I won't limit you to five, but that if you have an ultrasound in the department, those are the tools that you want to know how to use just yeah. at the drop of a hat. So, can I have seven? Seven sounds good. <laughs> seven is kind of where I think uh, most people need to be at kind of a bare minimum. And, uh, and I think that most programs across the country are there. And I'll tell you that the way I teach like our interns is uh, your first year, I want you to know these kind of seven applications. And then anything beyond that is icing on the cake. Um, and it's kind of up to you to, to pursue your interest. So um, I'd say the first five components are every component of the rush exam. So the rush exam, uh, if you remember, is, is the rapid ultrasound for shock and hypotension. Um, and the components for it, you can follow the mnemonic HIMAP, uh, as Scott Weingart kind of coined. Uh, and that's uh, so heart, IVC, Morrison's pouch, aorta, and then pulmonary or pneumothorax. And so um, each of those five components are kind of critical and life-saving, potentially life-saving 
um, scans that you should do. So I'd say the FAST exam, which would be Morrison's pouch, um, I think every emergency physician should know and probably does know how to do a FAST exam. Uh, a AAA um, is really important. Again, um, an emergency uh, rupture, you can diagnose really quickly. A pneumothorax, basic echo, um, and I'm not talking about kind of resuscitation. I'm just saying, is the heart beating, yes or no? And is there a large effusion and tamponade? Basic echo. Um, and then uh, I think IVC has a lot of value. That's maybe the one that uh, you could... Uh, get by without knowing, but for resuscitations, that's kind of the intro um, gate into getting into resuscitation with ultrasound. Those five, I would say, are the core ones that I want you to learn intern year, and then I'd add two other things, and that's pregnancy. So is there an IEP or is there not an IEP? Um, just because it's so common and because it's uh, fairly easy um, when it's positive. And then, um, and then procedures, so central lines and, and so forth. So I'd say those are like the core seven applications that I want you to graduate knowing how to do. Anything beyond that, like a gallbladder or an ocular ultrasound, I think adds significant value to your ability to care for patients, um, but is probably not 100% necessary. And again, icing on the cake. So we happen to know a, a skeptical radiologist who is very disparaging of the FAST exam, likes to say that it's a diamond algorithm, that if you scan them and you find blood in the belly, then they're going to get a CT. And if you scan them and you don't find blood in the belly, they're still going to get a CT. What are your thoughts on the use of the FAST exam? Yeah, I guess I disagree. Uh, I think that like the classic indication for the FAST exam is the unstable trauma patient where you can't get a CT. Right, so certainly in that patient where they're hypotensive, uh, if there's a traumatic mechanism, and you want to know where they're bleeding, a CT is unavailable, and so the fast adds significant value to that, and will change their management. To get to that level, you have to do a certain number of fast exams. So there's value in doing it. I wouldn't say even if it's not indicated, but in lower, lower, lower risk patients or lower index of suspicion, uh, so that you can feel that comfort. Uh, with the exam and then do it when it really counts. Um, that's like the classical indication, but I'd say that, you know, you need to know it for that. Um, hypotensive trauma patient, I'd say practice in learning that modality is, is a valuable reason to do the FAST exam. And then the third one is, is that case that I told you about, uh, when we started about the little girl who, um, we wouldn't have CT'd her. We would have done serial exams. Now, maybe we would have eventually CT'd her because it would have been obvious that she was getting peritoneal. Um, but man, that might have taken two, three, four hours. That could have had significant uh, negative uh, effects on her, her health and care. So if you're going to do serial abdominal exams, you might as well do serial fast exams. And there's some tricks you can do to kind of augment that, like putting the patient's head down and in Trendelenburg to uh, increase your sensitivity and so forth. But that's not the classical kind of indication for the FAST exam. And I think that a lot of algorithms do a FAST on every trauma patient and the vast majority are negative. And so I think people do get kind of jaded with the FAST exam. Um, but again, if you're vigilant about that and you apply those skills when they count, um, then having that experience is going to be valuable for you of doing the FAST exam every time and having it be negative. And yeah, I guess uh, I can understand that perception because most FAST exams are negative. But certainly I've seen a change management in lower risk patients. But I guess there's other patients that you just don't even want to radiate, like pregnant women. And again, it depends on their their risk, uh, how bad the mechanism of trauma was, um, if they're going to get a CT anyway. 
but uh, a lot of uh, injuries now are becoming non-operative and there is an evolving area of research with uh, ultrasound contrast media and so potentially we'll have another uh, way to augment our fast exam and in a significantly low risk patient maybe we'll use it as a more diagnostic test uh, to look for that splenic lack or liver lack um, without getting the CT in the future. We are certainly not there yet. I think that that pediatric case that you talked about is a great example of it changing management. If I was to channel this radiologist and continue to play devil's advocate, he would say that in no persistently hypotensive trauma patient are you going to be satisfied with the negative FAST exam. Like all those patients are going to end up going for an exploratory laparotomy eventually. Um, yeah, I don't think I agree with that. I think the idea at least is to decide where you need to intervene first. I mean, maybe eventually they will get an X-lap. Um, and again, it depends on the mechanism and your index of suspicion for an abdominal source of a bleed. Um, but uh, if somebody is hypotensive, could it be their lungs? Could it be in their chest? Could you see a large hemothorax? Like, absolutely, that's part of the FAST exam. And so it's going to tell you where to intervene immediately. Um, do they need a thoracotomy in the ED? Uh, do they need a chest tube immediately? Do they just need to go to the OR and get their belly cut open uh, and do the X-lap? Uh, maybe. Maybe it's a retroperitoneal bleed. Now we're doing more uh, interventional kind of uh, approaches, IR approaches to stopping pelvic bleeds and retroperitoneal bleeds. So that would be an example of like a negative fast exam uh, where you might change your approach of where you're going to manage the bleed. So for example, if you have a hypotensive trauma patient, a negative fast exam, they're not bleeding on the floor, their femurs look intact, there's nothing in their chest, um, then uh, you get a, a pelvis film and they have like a bad open book fracture. Um, that might be somebody who gets like IR management. Um, so I, I think it depends. They may eventually get an X-lap, but I think it does. I think it does dictate where you're going to intervene first. And I think also don't forget there's value in up triaging, right? So um, like I get patients all the time that are like oh, longboarding. It's always longboarding. They're, down the hill. Down the hill, right by the U. Yeah, and they longboard and they wreck, and they like their friend drops them off at the front, and they're just like ah, and they're kind of groaning, and uh, they're waiting in the waiting room because it. You know, it's not a classic kind of traumatic mechanism. They get hit by a car. They didn't get, you know, dragged by a horse. Like, you know, it's not your classic trauma activation. And they get triaged and they get brought back in a room. And I'm just like, oh, you don't look so good. And I throw a probe on them and I go, oh, let's upgrade this to a trauma activation now. So there is significant value in doing that rather than the slow play and potentially letting them bleed out and transfuse them and this and that. So, um, yeah, I, I disagree. So... It's, it's kind of a trite or often repeated thing uh, that point-of-care ultrasound is being likened to the modern-day physician's stethoscope. What is the relationship between how you're using ultrasound and the classical elements of physical exam? Uh, that's a great question, and um, I don't know. It, it kind of depends on how this evolves, but I think that it's going to be more integrated in the physical exam. And I think that's a good thing. I think that as the barriers to getting access to ultrasound decrease, as you pointed out, um, more people are just going to throw on a probe and take a look at the heart and uh, during rounds. It, it's a difficult situation because to do ultrasound properly, it requires that you have some infrastructure, that you're recording images, saving images, storing images, QAing images, and all of that requires billing. And so when you're billing for ultrasound, 
then you don't want to consider it part of your physical exam. So I think there is kind of a self-preservation mentality among people who do ultrasound that it's separate from the physical exam. I would love it if one day that disappeared and we could just practice ultrasound and practice medicine kind of the way that we should be practicing it, which is efficiently and effectively and appropriately. I don't know if we'll actually ever get there, but I think that there are times where like in the ICUs, you just take a quick peek at the heart or the IVC to see how it's doing, and you're maybe not doing a complete echo and probably shouldn't be billing for a full echo. And so I think that a lot of it is dictated by our kind of payer and billing system, and that's constantly evolving right now. And so I think that's going to determine a little bit of where we go from here. Um, but I would actually love it if this became more integrated as part of the physical exam and just you carried the probe in, saw the patient, did your exam, all of that got stored in the chart, and you wrote a note. Um, it would certainly simplify my life from a billing perspective. Are there certain elements of the physical exam that in your practice have been replaced by ultrasound? Like I could think of, you know, replacing the cumbersome JVP measurement with an IBC exam, say. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess uh, it's hard because uh, people say the physical exam is dying as well. And part of that is our own fault. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The less you do the physical exam, the less you're good at it and, and so forth. Um, there's still, don't get me wrong, there's still value in doing a physical exam and touching your patients and, and you know pushing on their belly and listening to their lungs. And um, that, that's important. Um, but I guess I find that my comfort zone is if I find something uh, concerning, I kind of want to confirm that uh, or I want to um, at least take a second look or, or more clear look at it with an ultrasound as well. So I don't say it would replace the physical exam, but maybe just to augment the physical exam. So for example, if somebody comes in with belly pain and I'm pushing on their belly and they're just a little tender in that right upper quadrant, if I have my handheld probe on me, I foresee a world where maybe we just put the probe on there and just take a look immediately. You don't have to go back, wheel in the machine, put in an order, you know, input the patient information. Um, but all of those things need to be integrated more efficiently so that that record can be stored and put in the chart um, and document it as well. So there are a couple barriers to it. I don't think it'll ever replace the physical exam completely, replace the stethoscope, but I, but I certainly think it has a lot of power and will definitely augment the physical exam. Um, I will tell you yesterday, I wore a stethoscope in, I had to find a stethoscope first from a resident and then went to a patient's room and wore it. And one of the residents, uh, saw me wearing a stethoscope and took a picture of me because it's so unusual. Um, so that doesn't mean I don't use a stethoscope and I practice in a place with residents where they're listening to the heart and lungs first and there's always a stethoscope available. Um, so I'm not saying it's going to replace it. Um, but certainly if I hear, um, you know, wet sounding lungs, I want to take a look and count the number of B lines and kind of see how wet they are. And I don't think that's any different than listening to it and saying, yeah, I hear wet lungs and getting a chest x-ray. It's just a different way to kind of confirm that. Do you think in that sense it could actually accelerate your learning with the physical exam because you get more immediate feedback on findings like you hear an ejection murmur and then you throw a probe on there and you you can confirm your findings instead of just pulling in and attending and saying hey do you hear the same thing i think it could be this yeah absolutely i i think so and uh I mean, that's why we want to get this in the hands of medical students. Um, and in that sense, 
uh, I talked about how, you know, the physical exam is dying. Well, hopefully that can kind of jumpstart at least the useful components of the physical exam. But I remember as like a med student learning silly things that just didn't make sense, like estimating the aortic size by palpation. Like nobody does that, nor should they do that, nor should you make a clinical decision based on that. And now that we have an ultrasound almost immediately available in the ER, I can just put a probe on there and measure it. And and so when I say that it replaces parts of the physical exam, like it, it's the stuff that probably you shouldn't be doing as, as your physical exam anyway. You know, maybe you, you feel it and you say, oh, I feel a palpable mass. Let me get an ultrasound. But estimating that size just doesn't make sense. What do you think are the... <clears throat> ultrasound applications that people are just starting to play with now that you anticipate will become fairly standard in the next 10 to 20 years? Because it seems like, at least in the ultrasound community on Twitter and on the internet, lots of excitement around a million different applications. Like, people are really excited to have some really cool toys and try to figure out what to do with them. What do you think are going to be the high yields that come out of that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Every every week, I feel like I read a paper about something that I had never even thought of or, or considered. I read one recently about assessing the difficult airway before intubating using ultrasound by measuring kind of you know the the tracheal size and looking for the epiglottis and things like that. Is there value in that? Probably in a certain number of patients. Will that replace kind of the standard approach to intubation? Probably not. Um, so, so you're right on that there's a lot of excitement and maybe uh, not, a bit, not a lot of it is practical. But I think that there are definitely evolving areas. And I think just off the top of my head, maybe the two that I think are going to um, be the most useful are lung ultrasound. I think that's an area that has been neglected for a while um, just because of the kind of belief that the lungs are full of air, so they're not really worth ultrasounding that's not valuable but now we're able to see okay we can see pneumonias and beelines and effusions and um, edema and, and so forth in the lungs so I think using lung ultrasound will be helpful and I can think of a number of ways that we might apply that that we're not doing now especially in like pediatric patients and uh, that's one area the other one I'd say is um, nerve blocks uh, and I think that's already kind of established in a certain subset of blocks so a lot of people are using them for peripheral blocks like radial and median blocks and um, even femoral blocks but I think we're learning more about you know doing large volume blocks like serratus anterior blocks and tap blocks and um, brachial plexus blocks and so forth and you need to be really careful with that but our anesthesia colleagues do that and I think if you get the right training uh, and you feel comfortable doing it you can certainly add value to your patient's uh, care uh, early on in the emergency department, and then they can maybe get transitioned to something uh, maybe more long-term upon admission or, or so forth. It seems like with the concern around opioid pain medications that that could certainly be a driving force behind that. Absolutely. I remember from Castlefest a lot of talk about using potentially, or maybe even in your department, TEE. Um, is that something you're doing at the university? Yeah, I did one last night. In the ED? Mm-hmm. So how, how are you integrating that into your practice? Yeah, so that's something that we're definitely pushing the limits on, um, and I'm really excited about. And um, that's echo-guided resuscitation or TE-guided resuscitation. Um, Let me just jump in real quick for our listeners and say that this is trans-esophageal 
echocardiography. So putting a probe down the throat to look at the heart rather than going transthoracically across the chest. Yes, exactly. So we'll start by talking about, I guess, transthoracic echo, right? Um, so when you put the probe on the chest to look at the heart, I think there's a lot of valuable information that you can get quickly. Um, in a cardiac arrest where you're doing CPR, uh, you have pads on the chest, um, you know, the patient is pulseless and dead and you've broken a few ribs and so forth. It's really hard to get good views. Now we know that pulse checks are unreliable, um, in cardiac arrests. There have been many studies that document that the ability to check a pulse during, in that 10 second period during cardiac arrest is, is very challenging. Um, and so if you can cheat and take a look at the heart, you probably should. Now, if you only have transthoracic echo or TTE available, I would start with that. That's a great way to do it. Um, but certainly there's some difficulty in getting the view. It's, there's a lot of real estate on the chest with where the hands are placed and the pads are placed. And if you're using like an external compression device like a Lucas or Autopulse device, um, it just takes up a lot of space that's going to get in the way of the ultrasound probe. Um, that doesn't mean you can't do it and that doesn't mean it doesn't have value. But certainly you could do it more easily if you look from inside the chest. And that's where the TEE comes in. It gives you better views um, faster and a lot of information. So during cardiac arrest, I guess the best thing that you can do is really good compressions. And the worst thing you can do is have interruptions in your compressions. Every time you do that, your coronary perfusion pressure drops. And you want to be above that coronary perfusion pressure if you ever want to have a chance at restarting the heart. Any interruptions in chest compressions drop that significantly, and it actually takes quite a while to build back up to a significant uh, coronary perfusion pressure. And even at a 10-second kind of pulse check, it, it just kind of kills your progress and you're starting from scratch. So if you can limit that pulse check to even two or three seconds by doing a TE, that adds value. It, I think there's also value in looking at the chest compressions themselves. Um, looking at like the hand positioning, looking at the depth, seeing is that, is that left ventricle being compressed or are we pushing over the aortic root? Um, everybody's anatomy is slightly different. Um, and certainly, especially if you've had, you know, a cabbage or surgery or whatever, um, things can be shifted in there and, uh, external landmarks don't necessarily correlate to internal landmarks. So the TE is helpful for that. And then of course there's interventions. So, um, I mean, you can see a shockable rhythm on TE before you can see it on the monitor. Um, because you can actually see the VTAC and VFib of the heart during chest compressions. Um, so you could intervene sooner with a, with a cardioversion or, or defibrillation, I should say, and um, you know, potentially deviate from the ACLS algorithm and kind of customize the care to that patient because of the TE. I don't know. I like to think of it as cheating. It just gives you more information. It's like an extra monitor. And I want that information to help manage my cardiac arrest patients. Can you think of a time when the use of a... TEE led you to continue a code when you might have otherwise stopped or vice versa? Definitely. I, um, yeah, I had a patient who, uh, arrested, uh, I think probably about 60 years old, uh, had a shockable rhythm, multiple defibrillations and kept kind of intermittently getting a ROSC or return of, uh, circulation and uh, kept arresting and coming back and arresting and coming back. And so EMS brought them to our uh, department and we continued the uh, resuscitation. One of the biggest challenges was that it was a very difficult airway. Um, and so they weren't able to intubate the patient, but they had an LMA device in. Because of the LMA, we couldn't 
place the TEE. You have to have a secure airway during um, resuscitation to be able to use TEE. You have to have the patient endotracheally intubated. So we weren't able to use the TE immediately. And uh, we kept doing the resuscitation and kind of would get ROSC and then would lose it and so forth. And at one point we lost pulses and said, boy, I wonder if we should call it. We kept going and we ended up getting the patient intubated and were able to drop the TEE. And we discovered that when we were losing pulses, uh, the patient was actually just profoundly hypotensive and not so... uh, it wasn't going into like a complete PEA. So PEA is when you have kind of electrical activity, but the heart is essentially asystolic. And this was like a profound state of hypotension where he wasn't perfusing, so he needed the chest compressions and so forth. But we could see that now on the monitor, on the TE, in real time. And uh, instead of kind of doing all the chest compressions and things that we had been doing uh, for the past hour, uh, we uh, put him on kind of rocket fuel doses of epinephrine and put him on an epi drip and he came back and uh, ended up going to the cath lab and ended up walking out of the hospital you know, a week or two later. Um, so I had a great outcome from, from that. But we resuscitated this guy for, with EMS time included, about an hour. And um, I think we would have given up had we not seen that glimmer of hope on the echo. Um, so it definitely changed management in that patient and, and other patients as well. That's it for another episode of EMIGCast. A big thanks to Dr. Okersee for joining us this week with some good cases and tips for ultrasound users at all levels. Be sure to check out his recommended resources in the show notes, and also check out the newly revamped emigcast.com. As always, the views and information included in this podcast are our own, and don't represent the view of Oregon Health and Science University or the Department of Emergency Medicine. Stay tuned for more great episodes coming to you soon, and until then, remember that if you're ever uncertain, you can always stick a probe on it.